Hello, everyone. My name is Suki Thompson. Welcome to Reset, the podcast, a place for you to get some inspiration and advice to help you live a more fulfilling work life. I do hope that your journey to feel more connected, more inspired, just a bit more energized starts here. Take a moment now with me to reset. Zaid Al-Kassab is the Chief Marketing Officer and Diversity and Inclusion Director of Channel 4. Consistently in the Marketeers Powerless Top 100, former CMO of BT Group and one of our most respected Marketeers in the UK. I have regularly interviewed Zaid over the years about the future of the marketing industry. But this is one of the bravest conversations we have ever had. Very few people who are as successful as Zaid are prepared to talk about their personal journey with depression and anxiety, as well as be such a high profile leader. I've learned so much from this conversation and I know that you will too. Not just about Zaid's life, but how to thrive and grow through adversity and to speak out about the things that you really care about. Zaid talks to me about his childhood, family, career, and how they have shaped him. He touches on why championing diversity initiatives and stopping discrimination in the workplace is so important. We discuss not only the societal stigma around mental health, but also the personal stigma Zaid has and is still working to overcome around his own mental health. He brilliantly shares real tips and insights that he uses to manage the struggles he still faces when it comes to his personal journey. Importantly, we discuss why Zaid has chosen to start speaking out now about these challenges and his purpose he has found from doing so. Our conversation is honest, raw and truly authentic. This is certainly not an episode to be missed. Said, it is so lovely to see you. Thank you very much for talking with me today. Hello, Suki. Pleased to be here. Well, Said, I was reflecting normally when we get together and we have we've known each other for quite a long time we've done lots of things in our industry of of marketing together where almost always we talk about marketing uh we often talk about diversity and inclusion uh we talk about november because you've been uh, very vocal and uh, raised a lot of money for charity for november um, and we also often talk about your amazing shoe collection yeah. <laughs> the amazing shoe collection hasn't improved much in lockdown, I'm afraid, but uh, it's still there waiting to come out. Is it good? Good. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Um, but today we're going to actually predominantly talk about depression, um, which is something that I know that you have had for uh, about 10 years. Um, you and I have actually talked about it when we've met for a lunch or a coffee or um, occasionally. And and you always said that at some stage you would talk more openly about it outside your very close friendship group. 
and you would talk about it in the industry um, and that perhaps we might have an opportunity to talk about it more openly. And today's the day. So um, how are you feeling about that? Well, I'm feeling good about that. It's taken me a long time to get to this place, but uh, I decided that I would benefit personally as well as perhaps benefiting others by being more open about uh, depression and anxiety. I've, I've had both of them. And um, hopefully uh, this is the start of a dialogue, you know, for many people, for our industry. Mm, yeah, good, good. Well, that's when we're going to have that conversation. But before that, I'd like to kind of know a little bit more about you. Um, you know, we often, you're so often there as the the person that talks about diversity and inclusion. Um, you're at PNG for over 20 years. You were at the head of marketing at BT, now that you're um, head of marketing at Channel 4, but you've also been the kind of head of diversity and inclusion in those places. Tell us a little bit about your childhood. Where, where do you come from? What are your parents? What's your parents' background? Well, my uh, mum is uh, British, English British, and my dad is Iraqi from Baghdad. Um, he came here when he was about 16 and met my mum. Uh, and I was brought up here, although I've also lived around the world, both in childhood and in adulthood. Uh, so I think of myself as a mixed race British person uh, with a very global outlook. Hmm. Yeah, and I guess being at P&G, that's a very global company, isn't it? So you probably, when you first went into work, you were in a very global environment. But when you were at school, did you feel, was it, was it quite a cosmopolitan school? No, I grew up in uh, Stockport in my formative years, uh, south of Manchester, and that was uh, not a particularly diverse area. I recall being bullied and uh, having racist uh, taunts at me at school. Uh, and um, I don't know if I could say that that shaped me, but it's certainly something that I remember. And mm. maybe it's part of why I feel strongly about championing everyone being able to be themselves no matter who they are what they're like where they're from what, what sort of things do people say, what sort of things did other people say to you at school uh well uh most commonly the use of the p word as we now say uh but um which of course is geographically inaccurate uh, <laughs> and i i i wasn't terribly popular for pointing out the their lack of uh, geography uh, knowledge um, uh, and in general, just being someone who could be, you know, pushed around in the playground as a result. Um, but I wouldn't say I suffered anything particularly bad on the scale of what many uh, non-white people in Britain still suffer today, I'm afraid to say. And of course, loads of friends, some of which will say they've never witnessed or seen any racism. But I can assure them that if you're non-white, you witness racism almost every day yeah no it's so interesting isn't it my mum is um 79 and we were looking at the newspaper yesterday and I was just you know pointing out the photographs where there were obviously non not not diversity in females not diversity in background um and it was so interesting because so often she said I just didn't even notice and because of her generation, you know, I, I, she's, I wouldn't call her racist or sexist at all. She's actually very open-minded and really wants to learn and is curious, 
but she just doesn't see it at all. Um, and, you know, lots of people do see it and just used to do nothing about it. But I think it's it's so interesting as we're trying to change that if you can't see it, if you can't hear about it, 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 it becomes much more difficult, doesn't it? Well, I think one of the interesting things about coming from a mixed race background is that you get to experience both sides. There's times when, you know, you are in the environment where it's assumed you're a white British person. And there's times when you're in an environment that's almost entirely non-white. And it's um, it's always interesting to me that the two sides of the discussion can be quite polarised. You know, people saying I've never seen or heard any racism and other people saying I experience it every day. And actually, both can be true. Um, I've, I've seen that both can be true. Um, and really, that sort of... Uh, that sort of just means that this is still in the early stages of a dialogue of everyone understanding each other from both sides, by the way, because people who say, if you haven't noticed it, you're a racist are, are plain wrong, in my opinion. It's quite possible to not notice it and not be racist um, mm. because you work in an environment or live in an environment where you simply don't encounter it. So how could you know it's going on? Yeah, no, absolutely. And when you went home from being a bit bullied at school, what did your mum and dad say? How did your mum and dad, did, they, did you talk to them about it? Did they tell you how to cope with it? No, don't think I ever talked to anyone about it. Don't think I even mentioned it until the last few years. Yeah. Um, not something that I, I just, I just dealt with it. It's part, it's part of life. And, uh, and I just dealt with it and thought that the best way to do so was to be incredibly resilient and, um, uh, and just stand up to it. Mm. And what about with your brother? Because you just have one brother. Uh, no, I've got uh, I've got uh, two brothers and uh, I've got three sisters. Uh, so um, uh, and wow, I didn't know you were from such a big family. Um, both of my parents remarried, so I've got a sort of big ah, okay. family. But we grew up with four of us as kids together in the household. Uh, and um, my brother, who is also mixed race, same mum and dad. Uh, he uh, he experienced pretty similar things, I think. Okay, interesting. Um, so you went to Oxford. You did PPE at Oxford. Um, what was that like? Did that did, did your background? Did, did you have any racism there, or was it all about the academic environment? And you know, you did. A, a, well, I always think of the most fascinating degree you could do. Yeah, back in the days before PPE meant personal protective equipment. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, no, I, I experienced um, some sort of bullying or mild racism right up, even in even in secondary school. Um, although that was a much more diverse environment. By then, I was at school in the south of England, and there were more non-white faces around. Um, but still, there was a little bit of it. And um, and then at university, I would say almost nothing at all of that nature. But it's a more broad-minded environment a learning environment with people of all different backgrounds so I guess that's to be expected and then uh, once I you know entered into the real world um, I certainly encounter racist attitudes and occasionally direct uh, verbal racism to me in adulthood I mean I can tell you examples in the last few years. It is extraordinary isn't it absolutely extraordinary um one of the things that always strikes me about you as a marketeer and a, and a kind of leader in business is you're, you're very curious 
And I think you always promote that kind of environment of people being curious, asking questions. But you're also somebody who's always been um, very supportive of learning. You've put in training programs to make people proper marketeers. And, um, you know, I guess part of your background at P&G, you know, you are, there are lots of marketeers that really never done a day's proper formal training in their lives, many less now than they used to be. But, you know, there still, still are. You're absolutely not one of those. You've come up through the kind of school of P&G. Um, you have always put in the kind of learning and development uh, within your teams. And does that come out of your just love of both kind of academic as well as experience? Or, or, or where's that come from? Well, I think I was lucky enough to fluke upon joining P&G as a graduate. And it was a complete and utter fluke. I didn't even know what the company did when I applied. Um, I didn't even realise it did. It had marketing jobs. Um, I just needed a job and was leaving university. <laughs> I interviewed anywhere I could find that said they were interviewing. Um, and um, and that is a fantastic school of marketing. It's not alone, by the way. Uh, Unilever, Diageo. Mars, Coke. I think there are a number of places that are fantastic schools of marketing and train you properly and give you the theory and enormous amounts of practice and fantastic responsibility while you're young. All of those places do. But I'm sorry to say not many other places do, because mm -hmm. my experience as I have progressed through my career is that I often meet marketers, sometimes middle managers, sometimes fairly senior people who've never had that grounding and understanding. Um, and it is, um, I think, incredibly important that you understand the basis of the skills and the profession that we have. And so I've always tried to encourage more of that in whichever business or organisation I've been in. Um, and although marketing is half art and half science and a lot of experience is needed to really learn how to be good at it, you will have a missing piece of the puzzle if you haven't had the more formal training of what it is. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Um, okay, let's talk about what we were gonna talk about today, which is about depression. Um, I think you said that you first had depression about 10 years ago, is that right? When, 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 did, it, when did it first happen or when did you first become aware that perhaps you had, I don't know which came first, anxiety, depression? Uh, definitely depression came first. And for me, anxiety and depression are two very different things that happen in very different circumstances. Okay. And I, I realise there's a sort of spectrum here of mental health worries. Um, and before I had them, I wouldn't have really understood the differences between things like anxiety and depression, but they are completely and utterly different. Um, yeah, I can't really tell you exactly what the triggers were, but I can tell you I was a point of a lot of changes and stresses in my life you know I'd, I'd left P&G after 20 very happy years there I'd, I'd outgrown it and wanted to move on but obviously I was moving from a place I'd been since I was a graduate until I was in my 40s um, I'd returned to the UK after again several happy years abroad in in two different places around the world um, I had a young family and all the stresses and strains that go with that kids starting school um and uh through a combination i guess of everything um i noticed that i wasn't feeling right um and realized that this was some sort of depression i did you know 
think about it a bit nervously because I didn't know what the impact of it would be on me, on my family, frankly, on some very practical things that I still worry about, like my health insurance or my life insurance, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But these things are, um, they're not as easy and obvious uh, as they should be. And they're certainly not, in my view, uh, legally controlled in the way they should be. Um, uh, And so you can be disadvantaged if you are someone who's had um, a history of um, mental health problems. So something made it start. I guess it doesn't really matter what, it just matters that uh, eventually I came to recognise that. And did you go to the doctor? What did you do? Uh, I uh, talked to my wife about it quite a bit and I delayed going to the doctor uh, for quite a long time because I was worried about the implications of, you know, having a diagnosis as opposed to self-diagnosing, which was... um, well, undoubtedly counterproductive for me, but felt at the time like the right thing to do for the protection of myself and my family and our future. I think that's unfortunate, but that's how I felt. And and what did your wife say and encourage you to do? Um, To talk about it, to go to the doctor, even though I resisted, um, and was just incredibly supportive, as she always has been. Um, so, um, I did also talk about it to, uh, a few close friends, you know, really old friends who I knew mm-hmm. I could trust. And ironically enough, I have several close friends who, uh, have depression or have had depression and were more open about it than I was, um, which was a help to me personally, but didn't seem to lead directly to me going to get a diagnosis or coming out more more generally about it yeah that's funny that isn't it so when you did finally go to the doctor what happened uh well I think like most people in this country they find a sympathetic ear but not much that the national health service does very quickly unless you are severely depressive and your life is in danger they don't exactly snap into action. So I felt um, some sympathy and some very general advice, which perhaps does work for people about exercise and uh, healthy eating and taking walks and things like that. And they they are important. I'm not belittling them. They're an important part of what makes me feel better as well. And then the offer of uh, online uh, talking therapy uh, hmm. which didn't sound terribly appealing, talking to someone I didn't know over a, um, a Zoom call. Um, and so I uh, I went away and carried on by myself for a while longer. That's interesting. Well, t- tell me why, I think it's, it's very interesting, my daughter's a PWP, which is a, which is a wellbeing practitioner for the NHS, works in a trust and does online talking therapy. Um, and actually what's fascinating to me is it's, unbelievably effective not for everyone but it's very good for anxiety it's very good for for depression but as you say it sounds unappealing and it sounds like it won't work and I wonder you know it was the more than just this is unappealing was it the idea of opening up or having to do something that wasn't face to face what made you say "Mm, that's not for me or, or at that moment anyway 
No, it wasn't the idea of opening up because having waited several years to go to the doctor and get a diagnosis, I sort of mentally decided, well, I wanted to do something about this. Um, but I didn't particularly think talking with someone I didn't know had much chance of success. Um, now, I was a little naive because in the end, I did face-to-face -face talking therapy, not online, because I received the online idea uh, and found that um, very effective. But I didn't go and ask for that until I was suffering from anxiety as well. And the anxiety was sort of induced by other situations. And I felt, OK, enough is enough. I've got to do something about it. Went back and uh, and asked if I could do the thing that had been suggested some time before and pretty much insisted that I wanted to do it face to face, which, of course, then puts you on a waiting list. Um, but eventually um, had um, some face to face talking therapy um, and found it pretty helpful, actually. Did you? What was most helpful about it? Well, when you've had that sort of stuff bottled up inside for quite a while, it's pretty good to unpack it and try and work out what things are working for you and making you feel good and what things are gnawing away at you and, and probably contributing to you not feeling that great. So do you have an understanding? Let's let's carry on with the depression and then come on to the anxiety because you say it is different. And I think it's for me. And I might kind of ask these questions because I'm I'm interested in it for myself. And I, I actually I've never suffered from depression, but my son has. Uh, I think we've talked about it before. And so I've lived it through him. And um and actually when I said that Jasmine does um Zoom treatment they actually do offer face-to-face -face. if there's anyone listening and they think that they're offered it on the nhs now um you you do have the choice of both so just to be to be clear and actually they're really working trying to work through their um backlog of of the amount of time it takes to go there but um what sort of thing triggers your depression do you understand that now no not really but i understand what sorts of things make it better so I i've talked for at least I've talked to myself and my close friends for many years about managing my depression. I don't think it's something I'm going to eradicate completely, or at least even if I do, I think it's something that might have a tendency to come back. That's certainly my experience so far. Uh, but I do know tricks for managing it and lessening it, and they're pretty reliable tricks. So it's more a case of keeping an eye on yourself, knowing your own feelings and uh, knowing that you need to adjust the balance when you get it wrong yeah what are your best tricks oh how long have you got I mean <laughs> a lot I do I do a lot and it's going to sound rather extreme and if someone's listening and thinks oh my god if I have to do all of that I'm never going to get there uh, it's really a case of what works for you that's the most important thing but I I gave up caffeine in all forms don't drink tea or coffee anymore or even a coke uh, I've pretty much completely given up alcohol, which was definitely something that made it worse. Mm. Uh, I try to eat much more healthily. So, you know, at least my five a day and I've given up meat. Um, I definitely need to go to bed earlier if I want to feel good. It's not about partying. It's about how much sleep I get. Right? Right. So, so I've got to go to bed earlier. Um, I know time with loved ones, um, immediate family, close friends, visiting my parents, which is something I didn't used to do very much, is all stuff that 
regenerates me and helps and makes me feel I've got my whole life and being in balance. Um, making time for things that I genuinely enjoy. They're typically with other people. It's not selfish, but, you know, live music, theatre, things like that. That's that's what my passion is in life, sort of cultural experience. So I've got to make time for that. Lots of fresh air. Going on a walk around the village with my wife um, is a particularly good tonic. Um, closing my computer and not working in the evenings, not working at weekends. Um, playing tennis is my most important outlet. Uh, two times a week uh, completely clears my mind. Um, look, but even things like changing which social media accounts I follow, you know, instead of angry politics accounts, which is, you know, something I'm very interested in, yeah. uh, into accounts that, you know, have the wonders of the natural world or, <laughs> or things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. There, there are a lot of tricks that I've learned that by degree turn the dial away from likelihood of feeling depressed to likelihood of not feeling depressed. So interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, from from my background of having had cancer a lot, I could uh, pretty much say everything that you've done, I've, I've had to do as well in a different way. And actually, you know, as you say, if you listen to it from the outside, one, you might go, gosh, that's a lot of things. You also might say, it's really boring. But actually, if you look at what makes you super healthy and is really good for you, you are doing all those things. It's just that we don't necessarily think that that's a brilliant way to live your life. We just go, oh, that means you have to give up all those nice things that and you have to do loads of exercise. Yeah, but, you know, there's increasingly uh, scientific evidence that some of those things which many people will say sound a bit flaky. And I, I would have said that before I learned about the effect of them. You know, fresh air, how on earth can that do anything? Yeah. Right? You yeah. know, uh, drinking less, oh, that's just, you know, stopping yourself from having fun. It doesn't matter, the odd hangover is okay. You know, th- these things sound pretty flaky. Getting another half hour sleep every night, how can that change my health, right? But the truth is there's increasing scientific evidence that these things all make a difference. Yeah. And by the way, it's a difference to your physical and mental health. And there's a massive overlap between the things that make a difference to your physical health and mental health, right? And that's because these things are connected. They're not two different spheres. Um, so I think in time, just as you know, we've learned that uh, eating five a day is good for you, we'll learn that all of these tricks are things that help people mentally as well as physically. Yeah. Oh, I mean, without a doubt, without a doubt. I mean, I think, you know, as you say, there's loads of evidence and what we're seeing particularly because of of COVID and lockdown in many ways, is the impact on people of not having done these things and being in an environment where they've had to live a kind of unreal life in many ways. Um, What's COVID been like for you? Because actually some of those things you've been able to do probably more than before. And, but you are a sociable person and, um, you know, you've always worked very hard and you've been very much a part of a team. Have you found lockdown difficult? Yes, I found it really difficult, um, partly because of my character. As you rightly say, I'm a very sociable person. I enjoy working in teams. I enjoy working in a busy office and seeing lots of people and sitting by myself uh, in front of a computer all day is certainly not what I go to work for. Mm. Um, so I found lockdown pretty difficult. And, and some of my uh, tips and tricks for managing myself 
you know, the going out, the tennis, the mm. theatre, the mu- live music, which is something that makes me feel alive, you know, I've not been able to do. Um, so uh, that did make it hard. Yeah, I, I, I didn't enjoy lockdown, lockdown at all. No, no, I, I, I agree. And I think, and did you, have you also found that your life has got much smaller? Because I, I think what I've reflected on, particularly in the last few weeks, and, and you know, a lot of the workshops we do, people talk about this a lot, is that we've kind of worked harder on our families and our direct team. But all the people, you know, like you, I would have seen you a few times between, well, I mean, on the last couple of years, I would have seen you more than a few times. I'd probably see you once every other month. And we'd have a bit of a chat and a bit of a catch up. All those people I haven't seen. So absolutely the kind of theatre bit, but, you know, I haven't seen my wackle friends. And for me, in a way, I hadn't appreciated how important they were to my life and to my well-being. And that sudden realisation that I've really just kind of reduced in the amount of people and social interaction and curiosity and different conversations that I have. Well, I think that rather like my comments earlier, that's a sort of experience of learning the right balance, isn't it? Because there's some benefits of spending more time at home with your family and not always being out and missing them and coming in late and never having a meal with your kids. I had more meals with my kids in lockdown than I probably had in the rest of my life put together. Yeah, yeah. Um, So great advantages. But, you know, life is about balancing all these different areas um and not having the social sphere and the input of people who are different from yourself or who come with different ideas and uh want to talk about different things is certainly uh certainly felt like a like a loss um to people who you know like stimulation and experience and the outside world and hearing about things that they don't know about that was much harder right yeah yeah Um, yeah yeah no I agree absolutely um talk to me about the anxiety bit so when did you realize did you have panic attacks what how did the anxiety manifest itself uh well the anxiety is much more definable it was triggered by unpleasant situations at work and it uh, manifested itself in me getting on the train to work in the morning and thinking oh my god my chest is so tight I can hardly breathe and what the hell is going on here um and uh and I knew why it was happening uh but since I was still going to go to work and do a job uh there wasn't much I could do about it in my view um but again uh that's something that you can learn to manage uh you can uh, work out how to deal with uh, mindfulness and breathing exercises and talking therapy about why you're going through that and what you can do about it uh, are all things that help with anxiety um and again i know some of that sounds a bit flaky to people but i'd be surprised if there aren't lots of people listening who think oh i recognize those symptoms sometimes i didn't realize that's what anxiety is or maybe that's the beginnings of anxiety mm. or something more serious mm. um but you know for someone who was relatively senior and you know had always been relatively successful in their career it's a very funny feeling to uh 
get up in the morning and at the moment you get on the train to work go, oh my god I don't want to be here I don't want to be doing this what the hell's going on with my body um yeah scary hey well I think because I knew the logical explanation of it it was slightly less scary I just knew that I had to deal with it and get out of that situation and how long did it once you'd so presumably it was work related once you left that work it got better did it well I'm not going to go into the details of it um as a situation but it was a work related um anxiety yes so now you're not in that environment do you but do you still get the anxiety sometimes Mm, I don't get the anxiety now I dealt with the root cause now okay okay interesting interesting it's um David Beanie who's one of our mental health experts um he has anxiety and particularly around presenting which is kind of ironic because what he does is spends all his time with us running workshops. And one of the things he talks about is what freed him up was going, it's okay. So if I'm going to have his anxiety manifest itself as panic attacks. So he said, okay, I'm just going to have one. And if I have one, when I'm in front of, you know, a few hundred people or 20 people or whatever, um, actually that's okay. And by giving himself permission to even think that, that's really helped him. So at the beginning, when we started working together and you know, we, we set up Let's Reset um, at the beginning of, of COVID. So we suddenly went into this running Zoom type workshops and technology wouldn't work. And I'd be going, okay, so we've got to get the technology to work and I need to make sure that David doesn't have a panic attack and I'm really stressed. But actually he was really good at kind of diffusing it going, look, it is very stressful, but going to be fine um yeah I think the funny thing about anxiety is because that's also a word we use commonly you know we say oh I'm a bit anxious about something there's a sort of continuum people don't always understand exactly what's meant and I think they find it funny that someone who you know is outwardly quite confident as I am um in fact inwardly quite confident I don't have a problem with the idea of being good at my work or being able to stand on the stage and talk about things could have anxiety they say oh well you're not that sort of person but anxiety isn't um, the opposite of me being confident enough to talk on a stage or confident enough to chair a meeting it's something completely different which is why as I say until I experienced it I wouldn't have known what that was what that meant um or understood that it was a physical effect not a sort of mm, emotional fear of you know a scary situation it, it's not that um I mean it might manifest that way for some people but but it's not the same thing as feeling I'm a bit nervous about giving a speech um it is a much uh it's a much deeper more physical thing than that Oh, absolutely. And I think that's the bit, you know, I I have a friend who um, was actually, I I think, really at a stage of burnout for all the reasons that we've seen for many senior leaders during COVID, working too much, no boundaries, not eating and sleeping. I mean, a lot of things that you've actually just talked about who thought they were having a heart attack. And, you know, we had a conversation. I said, actually, I'm absolutely sure you should go to the doctor. Absolutely sure you're not having a heart attack think you are having you have got anxiety and I think you are having a panic attack and it feels 
like you're having a heart attack because you've got all those signs. You know, your fingers are feeling funny. You can't breathe properly. And, you know, it's a very kind of slightly alpha male, male, but, you know, in tune, he thought with himself. Um, and, and actually, you know, scary. But the the body behaves in an extraordinary way, doesn't it? And it's quite strange that you can't, even though you might understand it, you can't necessarily control what's happening. No, and I know what was happening with me was my body was going, why are you about to put yourself in this situation that is really dangerous and dislikable to you? I'm going to do something to try and stop you from putting yourself in that situation. Except I was going to work every day and putting myself in that situation. So, yes. Yes. Did you have in that instance a kind of an aha moment? Because, I mean, it sounds like you really worked out, you know, you kind of knew why it was happening. But was there an aha moment that went, right, I really have to do something because it's not going to get better. In fact, it might get worse. Yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, you know, I knew I had to make some changes uh, and set about trying to deal with the root cause of it. Um, but um, it took me quite a long time to work that out. Yeah, it's interesting isn't it, listening to you. You know, you're very bright man you're you know I I think you have great emotional intelligence you are a very good leader you're a brilliant marketeer do you look at yourself sometimes and go why did I take so long you know I I understand I, I hear all the logic about why you didn't go to the doctor about why you didn't necessarily deal with the root cause of your anxiety and and there's very good rational reasons but do you sometimes look at yourself and say why did I not you know, take action sooner? Well, I know the answer to that. Uh, We live in a world where that is seen as weakness and where um, anything to do with mental health improvement is seen as a bit quirky or kooky and, you know, uh, new age uh, hippie and uh, where strong people persevere and the word resilience is the most you know championed word of our age and therefore uh, admitting or dealing with something that can't even be seen is a sign of weakness uh, and inferiority and it doesn't matter that I had close friends who'd had depression and I'd been I hope a good friend to them talked about it understood it doesn't matter that I was well enough read to know that these things are chemical and that the um, emotional or mental side of things can become a physical problem as well. I knew all that logically. I'd seen it with other people, but it didn't change the fact that I'd been brought up in a world where admitting that sort of stuff is weakness and doing anything about it is new age hippieism. Um, And hopefully that's because of my generation, because actually when I see my children and their awareness of mental health and um, the way they and their friends talk about it openly and deal with it. I am greatly cheered that the world is changing and the next generation will not suffer from the hangovers uh, that I suffered from that stopped me from seeking help or taking it more seriously earlier. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And we see it all the time. I think this next generation are clued up to it. I think they're also 
very protective of themselves. I think, you know, some people call them snowflakes, but actually I think in many ways they're very open and they understand and talk about it. Um, so why now? Why are you feeling comfortable about talking about your mental health now? Well, there was a, a trigger to me being more open about this widely, which was as part of the work we were doing at Channel 4 on inclusion and diversity, we decided to introduce something called inclusion passports. Inclusion passports are a grand word for basically an opportunity for people to talk about themselves, their own situation with their manager and have a dialogue and expect a response. Um, and that might be um, might be disability or might be mental health or um, might be uh, troubles they're having at home or might be their home setup and childcare and, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but we were encouraging employees to have those open conversations in order to make a more inclusive workplace. And I felt like a bit of a fraud, frankly, because I'd not been talking about a pretty fundamental part of me and what I was managing every single day. Mm. Um, so I decided, well, first to talk to my manager, uh, Alex Mahon, who's the CEO of Channel 4, about it. Uh, and I also spoke to the people director about it and said, look, hey, this is me and this is what I go through. And I'm not really expecting you to do anything, but it seems a bit odd that I've never mentioned it. Um, and then I thought... Um, it would be beneficial to that project if I was more open about it internally in Channel 4. So I, I wrote a little blog for employees and uh, and I published that to our internal employee resource group. It's called Four Mind. It's a, a, a mental health um, employee group. Um, and I got a really lovely reception from people and, and lots of really lovely notes and thanks and people saying, hey, that's really great and you should you know talk about that more widely. So I sent it more widely around my team rather than just the people in the mental uh, health uh, resource group. Uh, and I got an equally nice reception. And then I thought, oh, hello, this is interesting. I uh, maybe should talk about this more openly. Mm. Um, yeah, it's interesting. So your biggest fear was that you would be seen as weak or, you know, as you say, I don't know, not serious, not capable. And actually, that's not the response you've had at all. Is it? That's not the response I've had in any sense. No, I've had the opposite. But I can't, with my hand on my heart, tell you that that fear has gone away because I know how I would have felt about things a decade ago before I'd experienced any of this. I probably would have been reasonably biased and prejudiced and thought that this was a sign of weakness and these people were inferior. Um, and so I still harbour some of that fear. I still think, yeah, lots of people will come out in support, but there'll be lots of people quietly thinking, hmm, I wouldn't hire Zaid or, oh, no wonder he's like that when I work with him, um, which I, I think would be, I think those would be the wrong reactions. I think they misunderstood what depression or anxiety are if they think it would affect my work like that. But I, yeah. I can imagine. That. Yeah, it's, it's funny, isn't it? It's, um, you know, I think, we, you know, we talk a lot about, authentic leadership opening up showing vulnerabilities whatever they are the reality is it's hard it is hard and so often it is it is inspiring there will be somebody and some people that probably do feel like that but 
as you say, it's it's an it's a misunderstanding, isn't it? Um, I, th- I think it's also a factor of our industry, and I have, you know, thought very deeply about what made it difficult in my job to be open about these things. But in the marketing, advertising, creative media industries, um, there are often a lot of people in the room. And they come from different departments. You know, there's a there's a finance person there, and there's a, a operations person there, and there's an HR person there, and there's a sales person there. And I think the onus is on the marketing creative person to be the life and soul of the party, to be the ideas generator, to be the creative spark. Uh, to often be the person pushed onto stage to uh, do the speech, even though everyone else was involved in it behind the scenes, uh, to be the person who does the podcast, to be, be yeah. the person yeah. who, you know, um, who who appears in the video to employees, uh, to be the person who goes out externally to partner companies. There's a particular role that's being um, sort of created for people who are marketing, media, advertising, creative people. And it's a role that, doesn't fit nicely with the idea that those people might be depressive or suffer anxiety because if someone said you need to pick someone from your company uh to do this speech on the stage uh you'd say well i'm going to pick the marketer but not if they suffer from anxiety that doesn't sound like a good combination um so i think it's different in our industry and and i think it's noteworthy that there's many people like yourself who've spoken very openly about cancer um there's many people so many people who've spoken openly about coming out as uh, lgbtq plus that it feels um it feels like something that's commonplace uh, to talk about cancer or to talk about being gay in our industry there are very few people who've talked about having depression uh, yes. and yet and yet statistically there are more people who suffer depression than who are gay or suffer cancer uh, at, at the age, at the working age we are, eventually, sadly, many more will suffer cancer. But, but at that um, working age, yeah. you know, there are more people who suffer depression, yes. um, which is up to 20% a year by, you know, by the measures uh, mm. that MIND or the NHS have looked at. Um, and yet no one's talking about it. So there's definitely something going on. I, I completely agree. And I think for me, the thing I've found most fascinating in the work we've done in the last two years, particularly around the Seven Knees workshop that we do that, that looks at this and gets people to talk, is exactly this. Just how many people do have elements of depression, of anxiety, have had big challenges in their lives and have never talked about it. And, you know, we work a lot with marketeers and for all those reasons, because, you know, I think wonderful thing about marketeers is all the things you've talked about, plus they're very much at the kind of forefront of the purpose of the organisation, of culture of the organisation. They're the people that can make the real difference. But it's so interesting, isn't it, that they are the very people that find it so difficult to be open, to even acknowledge that there might even be a challenge or that with some of these things happening, they should change their lives or as you say learn some tips and tricks some frameworks um because i don't know they just think they can just carry on and somehow they'll self-diagnose and self self-select and self-help themselves yeah 
normally you'd go to an expert to get help but this seems to be something that people are reluctant to do that about yeah yeah um what benefit has this had on you so you know my son sits on the spectrum I don't know I always think it's a kind of word weird weird is sits on the spectrum is on the spectrum and we spend as much time talking about the super strengths that he gets from that um as we do about how he has to live his life a little bit differently from some other people. Are there some benefits to having had still living with depression and anxiety? Well, the obvious benefit in the workplace is, I hope, being a more empathetic and supportive manager and team leader, um, because there are a large number of people in any workforce who have some sort of mental health um, concern mm. and uh, they are all still equally valuable and successful employees uh, and understanding them and being able to support them uh, is certainly something that will enhance you as a manager and contribute to your business right so so mm. there's a there's a there's a hard edged thing about just being a better workplace um and of course, you take that into your dealings with your friends and family. And, you know, I think I've been a supportive friend to people who've um, who've had depression or anxiety or worried about things. Um, that obviously feels good. Uh, I, I, I also think that um, understanding yourself in, t- in terms of the, the process that comes out of recognising it and wondering what you can do about it is hugely helpful. You know, I, I feel like my life is more purposeful and I know the sorts of things I want to do with my time, with my family, with my friends, the sort of company I would want to work in. And um, and I am much clearer on those things now than I would have been before. Much clearer. So I, I can, in a sense, get more out of the time that I spend with people because I know why I'm doing it, because I've had to think about this. Yeah, and I would absolutely say that about you. I think you're very clear. You know, you take time to play tennis. You love playing tennis. There's a reason why you need to play tennis. I get that. But, you know, you're very focused on doing that. And I think what we see, particularly with senior leaders, is they know the things that perhaps they should do that makes them feel good. But they don't perhaps have that trigger. They don't have perhaps thought about it enough. So they don't necessarily do it. And I and I do see that. Yeah, I think, you know, I feel like you have a very purposeful life in many ways, in its broadest sense, because of that. Um, How do we get more people to talk out about the stuff? You know, you've been very brave and it's great to have somebody like you to talk, you know, to be heard. How would you encourage other people to talk out and speak out? Well, I start by saying I'm not on a mission to get everyone to speak out because this is quite personal and everyone has their own way and I'm not sure if everyone wants to speak out and get attention for it. That's different from saying I don't think talking about it would help. I'm pretty sure talking about it would help almost everyone but that talking might be with a professional or with a husband or wife or with their best friend. It doesn't need to be being public about it and people need to come at this at their own pace and judge whether they think the balance is right for them for other people to know about it I'm completely okay with that um and I wouldn't have been in a place to talk about this you know five years ago at all um and someone forcing me to would have been pretty awful 
Um, so, so, so I, I do think the dialogue increasing is important, but I don't put any pressure on any individual or feel that anyone is letting the side down by not talking about it at all. Um, and I think it will just come with time and understanding um, and with more people speaking up and saying, yeah, that's, that's normal. Right. So, you know, at the, in the middle of last year, when we were in lockdown, um, the government's own statistics say that one in six people was uh, suffering from depression. <laughs> um, and they don't mean feeling a bit down. They mean suffering from depression, which is a different thing. Mm. Uh, I'm sure almost everyone was feeling a bit down. Um, one, in, one in six people at the same time in Britain. This is huge numbers. Yeah. So, you know, it's the sort of thing that ought to be pretty commonly talked about and the resolutions to which ought to be a part of our dialogue in society as well as in workplaces. Um, but I think it'll happen. It'll happen over time. And as we talked earlier, the next generation is much more comfortable with these conversations. And so it will happen in 20 years inevitably the question for me is whether we can make it happen in the next you know three to five years rather than wait 20 years yeah absolutely and I think if we if we do more to help leaders understand have the conversation create the environment and the ways of working where um we recognize it I think that will begin to to make a really big difference and you know part of that is having people speaking out but I think it's as much about creating those kind of environments you know in channel four you're very good at you said diversity inclusion I love the inclusion password passports um but you know you have a great focus on well-being and you know not just in your programming but you know as as a business as a culture and you know the more companies that we see really do that um will make a difference I think I hope so yeah I do Said, thank you so much thank you for being so open um thank you for answering all my questions that I had bubbling around in my and my mind um you know an amazing reset of your life and thank you for exploring that in so much detail with me what's the what's the one kind of thing that perhaps you do every day to give you that sense of energy of of well-being is, is there anything that you think about every day or try and do every day just to make a difference to yourself well I, i've saved the corniest thing of all to last but just reminding yourself how lucky you are, particularly with your loved ones and the relationships close to you. I do think that is the most important thing that anyone can do. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Zed. Thanks for chatting. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed Reset the Podcast, I'd love it if you would forward it to your work colleagues, friends and family. Reset the Podcast is a Let's Reset and Advertising Week global production. Executive producer is Richard Larson, with me, Suki Thompson. Thanks to our sponsor, Liars Non-Alcoholic Spirits and voiceover artist, Talitha Penny. Music provided by Audio Network.